Moscow is in shock today, and a sharp chill of fear has ripped across Russia. One of Vladimir Putin's fiercest critics, as you say, gunned down in broad daylight, four bullets in the back, in the very shadow of the Kremlin. It was a stunning event, a brazen murder in the heart of Moscow. Seven years ago, on the evening of February 27, 2015, Boris Nepsov, the best known and by far the most popular of Russian opposition leaders, was assassinated crossing a bridge with his girlfriend. It was the day before Nepsov was to lead a march for peace opposing Vladimir Putin's first war in Ukraine. The murder, like many in Russia involving journalists and political opponents of Putin, was never solved. But the Nepsov assassination had an impact and consequences that few could have foreseen at the time. In the days after the murder, a young woman working for a shadowy outfit in St. Petersburg, known as the Internet Research Agency, was directed to churn out social media posts blaming Nepsov's assassination, not on Putin's agents, as many in the West suspected, but on, you guessed it, Ukrainian oligarchs. The woman, Ludmila Savchuk, refused. I don't want to do their dirty work, she said. Instead, Safsar turned whistleblower. She reached out to a Russian investigative journalist who had actually gone undercover in an effort to figure out what the Internet Research Agency was up to. In furtive meetings in a St. Petersburg coffee shop, Safchuk told the reporter all about the Internet Research Agency, turning over internal emails and other documents that exposed how it did its business. Set up by a wealthy oligarch close to Putin, the Internet Research Agency was a new and disturbing phenomenon in the global information wars, an online troll farm whose purpose was to pump out social media posts under fake names and phony avatars that advanced the interests of the Russian state and derided, ridiculed, and smeared the Russian president's enemies. The journalist broke the story in an independent Russian newspaper, and Russians learned for the first time about the existence of the Internet Research Agency and its stealthy efforts to sprinkle social media platforms with pro-Putin propaganda. The news got relatively little attention in the West, however, until a year and a half later, when it was revealed that the very same Internet Research Agency had played a critical role in Putin's intervention in the U.S. presidential election, buying fake ads on Facebook, creating phony bots on Twitter that mercilessly attacked Hillary Clinton and spread nasty conspiracy theories about the American political system. It was, in short, the moment Americans first came to understand the concept of fake news and disinformation. And it came about in large part thanks to the groundbreaking work of a Russian investigative journalist with the help of a fearless whistleblower disgusted by the murder of Boris Nepsov. But the ability of Russian journalists to cover the news and expose wrongdoing is now challenged as never before. In the wake of Putin's latest and more vicious assault on Ukraine, the Kremlin has launched a harsh new crackdown on the press, threatening journalists with up to 15 years in prison for spreading, quote, false information and banning them from even referring to the events in Ukraine as a war. We'll talk to that Russian journalist who first broke the story of the Internet Research Agency about what these new policies will mean and what they foreshadow about Putin's Russia. But before we do, we'll also hear from a Ukrainian member of parliament about how his country is gearing up for what is likely to be a long and bloody battle on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend 
Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I wanted to, to start out by talking about the Nepsoff assassination today. First of all, because it's it's hasn't been mentioned in quite some time. You barely hear a reference to it and largely forgotten. But it is a reminder of just how deadly things get for people who speak out against Vladimir Putin in Russia, number one. Number two, it did lead, as I mentioned, to the exposure of the Internet Research Agency. But probably thirdly and most significantly, what was the message that the Internet Research Agency tied closely to Putin, owned by an oligarch very tight with Putin. What was the message he was trying to send out there? Blame it on the Ukrainians. Kind of a foreshadowing of uh, everything we've seen since. There's another kind of foreshadowing that has to do with Ukraine as well, because if you recall, Isakov, what Boris Nemtsov was doing at the time he was assassinated in 2015. He was opposing he was, Putin's war he, the he, war in Ukraine in he, 2014 and 15. He was right. organizing a rally against Russia's military intervention in Ukraine, and he was working on a report about pro-Russian, you know, Russian troops, actual Russian troops fighting alongside rebels, uh, Ukrainian rebels in eastern uh, Ukraine. So this has been a singular obsession for Putin for a very long time, which goes a long way to explaining why he has been willing to do this, you know, what may end up being a, a catastrophic military adventure uh, for him. And that's going to, has already and will continue to cause a huge amount of suffering for people in Ukraine and upset the balance of powers in Europe and stability um, in, a, in a place that we've counted on to be stable for a very long time for all of our security. Yeah, it seems like Putin has basically been drinking his own Kool-Aid about Ukraine and doesn't seem to be able to get any counter views at this stage of the game and is very, very aggressively running out of the country anyone who might possibly say anything to the contrary. Because in addition to the attacks on independent Russian journalists, I think the latest is that more than 150 Western journalists fled the country and the U.S. embassy has told all Americans to get out of Russia right now if they can. It's getting to be a pretty grim place for the truth right now. And not just Western journalists, Russian journalists are leaving as well. And we'll hear that when we talk to uh, Andrei Sashnikov, the uh, journalist I was just referring to, who broke the story about the Internet Research Agency. He's now in Prague. He's left Moscow. And he says many of his former colleagues in the Russian media are in the process of doing the same now because this this new crackdown is uh, it really goes beyond anything we've seen before. I mean, the idea of 15 years in prison for publishing false information, you know, that is uh, opens the door for Soviet style totalitarian control of the press. And that appears to be what we're looking at. 
to circle back to the comment you made at the beginning, Mike, about how uh, Putin has banned the use of the, the word war with regard to Ukraine. One internet wag just recently commented that everyone in Russia is now reading Tolstoy's special operation in peace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, we'll be looking for new translations of, uh, of special of operation Tolstoy classic. Uh, just one other point I want to make about the relevance of all this to what's going on right now. In recent days, the Treasury Department has imposed further sanctions on the oligarch behind the internet research agency, Evgeny Prigozhin. This is a guy who, as you'll hear on this show, wears many hats besides, you know, doing the social media stealthy interventions for Putin through the internet research agency. He also runs an operation of mercenaries that was active in Syria and is now active in Ukraine. So, on many levels, U.S. officials have uh, been targeting this guy. And I just wanted to make w- one last point. I, I think the crackdown on the press and so many of Putin's actions right now, which seem to go beyond uh, the, the limits that he had set for himself in the past, reflects his psychological state, which is deep sense of aggrievement and and anger. And And just today, we're recording this podcast on Tuesday, the top officials of the U.S. intelligence community, the DNI, Avril Haines, Bill Burns, the CIA director, and others testified on Capitol Hill. And, you know, I listened to some of that testimony, and frankly, it was it's pretty scary because Bill Burns talked about Putin being angry and frustrated and likely to double down and, as he put it, try to grind down the Ukrainian military with no regard for civilian casualties, which we're seeing, you know, play out. But it's this sense that he doesn't know what his end game is. Uh, he doesn't want to lose, acknowledge defeat, lose face in any way. It's a dangerous moment uh, for uh, a guy who has uh, possesses nuclear weapons, the, the largest nuclear arsenal in the world, who feels cornered. I'm not suggesting he's going to use them, but one of the other intelligence officials who was up there testifying said he needs to be washed very carefully and he needs to be taken at his word. Mm. Yeah, well, nobody knows how this thing is going to play out. It is really hard to see a uh, peaceful, easy solution to a crisis that has produced, what, already 2 million refugees, close to 200,000 Russian troops on Ukrainian soil, mass casualties among civilians and um And, and frankly, and, it's and why some of the, I think, kind of loose talk about no-fly zones over Kiev is a little dangerous uh, because uh, you just don't know how that kind of direct military action and interaction with, with the Russians could spin out of control. Well, we've got a very good guest to give us the Ukrainian perspective on this. Uh, Marian Zablotsky, a member of the Ukrainian parliament, a member of President Zelensky's party. So before we get to Andrei Sashnikov, the Russian journalist, let's talk to Zablotsky. Let's get to it. So we are now joined by a Ukrainian member of parliament, Marian Zablotsky, coming to us from Western Ukraine. Mr. Zablotsky, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me. 
Give us a sense of what is going on right now in the ground in Western Ukraine and what you're hearing about is going on elsewhere in the country. Basically, uh, people have recovered from the initial shock because we thought that after Second World War, it is impossible for another country to make territorial claims on another country and invade for that reason. We thought that these horrors were are well behind us, thanks to the international system of United Nations, NATO. Unfortunately, we didn't get to NATO in time, and now we have invaders on our land. The period, the initial shock of Ukrainians quickly turned into anger. So currently, it feels like almost every Ukrainian is desperately trying, what can he do personally to uh, fight back the Russians? In Kyiv, there were and still are far too many uh, volunteers to fight the Russians than there are actually guns. One of the most popular jokes in Kiev was, whom do I have to bribe in order to get into the army? Uh, which was actually the case, uh, not, not literally, but I did have a lot of friends texting me and asking me uh, as a favor to sign up and to receive guns in order to, to join the fight. In Western Ukraine, people are mobilizing, first of all, to help refugees, secondly, and not least, but maybe more importantly, to supply the army. So when you say Ukrainians are actually uh, <laughs> trying to bribe their way into fighting in the army, it does... It's a joke. Yeah, well, but it does indicate just the, uh, the, the strong feelings of the Ukrainian people right now and their determination to fight the Russians, which raises the question, even if the Russians take control of Kiev and much of the country, what is going to happen in Ukraine? How can the Russians possibly govern a country whose population is hates them and is determined to fight them? That's the point. Uh, they actually can't. This is why, according to the recent poll, over 90% of Ukrainians believe that we will receive a military victory. So Russians did invade with a force of 150,000. Currently, uh, with volunteers and with mobilization, I believe we already have more troops. The only problem is that Russia spends on the military $40 billion per year, and we spend $4 billion. So they have uh, funding for 10 times the equipment. The problem is that for a 40 million people country, 150,000 force is definitely not enough even to capture it, not, not even mentioning the occupation, and where more than 90% hate the invaders, it would be impossible for them to govern. So there are actually very good and rational reasons why Ukrainians do not believe that Russians can possibly succeed in this affair. So Mr. Zoblatsky, given that, how do you see this playing out and how and over what kind of a, of a timeline? I mean, the Russian army is eight times the size of the Ukrainian arm, army. So if the Russians wanted to try to take over in cities like Kyiv or in other large population centers, they can do it. The question is, what happens then? And I'm wondering, and it, it sounds like there will be an insurgency. And I guess I'm interested in your view on how that plays out, how long it lasts, how bloody you think it'll be. I know this is all speculative, but Ukrainians have to be thinking about this possibility. Well, look, first of all, what we have seen is that the numbers that Russian military give about their capacity are extremely misleading. 
the problem that we saw is that a significant quantity of the soldiers that we capture is because their equipment breaks down. When I mentioned to you that they spent $40 billion on their military, I mean that they spend it, but it doesn't necessarily reach them. They are full of cronyism, theft, corruption. And when sometimes we capture the Russian soldiers, we are shocked at how neglected they are. We are sometimes capturing them with food supplies that have expired back in 2015. And visibly, if you look at them, you can see that this is not a very well-equipped army. This is definitely not a $40 billion army. Definitely most of it gets lost on the way somehow. Secondly, you have also to understand the morale of their soldiers. The morale of our soldiers is clear. So I have friends fighting in Kyiv. One of my friends, he's leading one, one of the battalions in Kyiv of self-defense units. His wife and one one-year-old son stayed with him in Kyiv. So they are refusing to leave him. So having his wife and a child, he will fight desperately to the bitter end in order to protect his family. On the other hand, what is the motivation of Russian soldier? His salary, especially after the recent sanctions, is $500 per month. What motivation does he have to risk his life in order, in order to attack the street he has never been on? His only motivation and primary motivation is to survive. So in most of the times when they are being shot at, they flee. And this is one of the reasons why we were talking about their poor morale and why we have been capturing them in hundreds, because they just do not want to fight. How many Russian soldiers do you believe have been killed? The conservative estimates that the Americans have put it is, is about 3,000 Russian soldiers, but they, even they say that's conservative. What, what do you think the number of Russian fatalities has been? Very difficult to say. It could be easily over 10,000. If we have, several days ago, we have more than 200 captured soldiers. and The ratio of captured to killed is difficult. <laughs> Honestly, it's very difficult to say. Because when, when, especially if you fire with artillery, I don't want to go into many graphic details. It's not that there are whole bodies to count them. So let me ask you about the American and European reaction to the war in Ukraine. As I'm sure you know, by most estimates now, as a result of the financial sanctions undertaken in the United States and in the European Union, Russia looks like it's on the verge of financial collapse within a matter of months. Yet you and other members of the Ukrainian parliament have been calling for increased measures taken by the United States and Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're calling for and why you think it's the necessary next step? I think that a lot of the countries, probably not in the US, but maybe in Europe, have been making a mistake for decades while engaging Russia. Here's the thing. For example, Germany engaged itself with Nord Stream 2 pipeline and made itself reliant on Russian gas. Now they have a problem. Now they have a moral problem that they cannot possibly continue to pay for that gas for much longer because of the threat that Russia poses to other countries and because this money are eventually end up in the Russian budget and, and for killing our people. If back in 2005, when we saw the murders of uh, Anna Politkovsky, Vladimir Litvinenko, his poisonings, uh, back then, some of the countries decided, okay, these are not the type of people that we can have $11 billion worth of investment projects in energy. And for example, diverted that into more 
local production, more green energy, whatever, but just any other sources, but not with the person who orders the poisoning for other people, then it would have been a different country. I believe that because of the dangers that Russia poses, it's not only a question of sanctions. I believe that the civilized world should cut all possible ties to Russia because Russia always uses it as leverage. This is the problem that we had in Ukraine. If you buy something from them, if you connect to them, then you end up paying more in the end. The same thing happened with Germany with natural gas, for example. So the, the idea was to bring gas from Russia. And even before the Russian war, Russian invasion of Ukraine, they were paying record high prices for gas. President Zelensky and obviously many people in Ukraine are calling for a no-fly zone over the, the country. How critical is a no-fly zone to the ultimate success of the Ukrainian resistance to the Russian invasion? It might well in the end be the decider of the whole war because we can definitely beat them on the ground even while having smaller amount of tanks. But you have an enemy, you have to have at least some fighting capacity against it. If you cannot shoot something that is five kilometers above you, then you cannot physically win. I understand the concerns of Western countries, whether it would be considered an act of war, because then probably Western countries would have to engage Russians directly in Ukrainian airspace. But here's the thing, certain that this will not end in Ukraine in principle. This is basically the moment when Hitler invited Czechoslovakia and Poland. Back then, Western countries thought, well, maybe it will stop somewhere. No, it will not. Putin is openly laying claims towards Baltic countries, which are members of NATO towards Moldova. Plus, as you may have heard, we have more than 3,000 volunteers from United States Great Britain joining fight in Ukraine. Unfortunately, we'll end up in a much more serious conflict. And the sooner it is stopped, the better. Without a no-fly zone, how long can Kyiv hold out? It's difficult to say. And uh, the thing is that it's a city where three and a half million people lived. So even with tens of thousands, and it's quite a big city, it's one of the biggest cities in Europe. Even with all the firepower, it, I think Russians have almost no chance of taking it uh, in any reasonable time. Basically, Kiev is now a fortress. Are we talking about essentially a siege? I mean, a week ago, we were all focused on that 40-mile-long convoy headed toward Kiev. It does not seem to have made progress in recent days. They seem stalled. So the what it appears is the Russians plan on continued to shell the city and encircle it. Basically, we're talking about a medieval-style siege that could go on for quite some time. Well, first of all, they have to get to the position of the siege because currently uh, a lot of members of parliament are traveling to Kiev daily and bringing supplies. So Kiev is not cut off. And their initial plans, plans to cut it off have failed. I hope it does not happen in the near future. But even then, look, it's a city that still has probably hundreds of thousands of people left in it, but it had supplies in stores for three and a half million people. Even if you discuss the worst case scenarios, it's very difficult for me to see how they can possibly storm the city. And again, uh, 
So amount of troops that are trying to storm Kiev, I heard that these are 30s or something uh, battalion tactical groups in Russia, which means 30,000 people. The number of volunteers that receive guns is already 30,000 plus the regular troops. How can we possibly do that? It's almost impossible. I have to ask you about uh, the leader of your party and the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. He just today, as we record this on Tuesday, addressed the British Parliament. Um, he invoked Winston Churchill, his famous speech to the commons in during World War II. Zelensky said, we will fight for our land, whatever the costs. We will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. He has inspired the world, shown uh, tremendous courage and and leadership. Did the Ukrainian people know this President Zelensky, or has the man met the moment? I mean, is this something that uh, comes as a surprise to you, uh, a pleasant surprise, or would you have expected this, this kind of character from him? This is exactly what I expected from him. He, first of all, he won the presidential election with 72% of the vote. He's charismatic, and one of the things about him, he's sincere. Everything that he says, he says honestly and always truly believes in it. In all the discussions that we were with the president about different legislation, he always tried to take the position of the correct and the right side. And I always admired that. And I had no doubt that when the tough times came, he would do the right thing. And I know that uh, we understand in Ukraine that he has, we are receiving news, although we're mostly focused on local ones, but we do hear rumors that he has become a hero abroad and a symbol of how the supposedly weak can fight the strong. And I guess the message is from me and from the president, from Ukrainian people, do not be afraid. Russians aren't that scary as they purport to be. They are just bullies and hillbillies, right? They may posture as much as you want, but low level of intellect, chronic alcohol abuse do not make them that strong. So if we spend on our military $4 billion and uh, they spend $40 billion, then United States, which spends $650 billion, definitely should not be afraid of that army. So the Ukraine and uh, Russia have, I, I believe, negotiated now three times regarding a possible settlement to the Russian invasion. And each time they failed, it doesn't seem like the parties are getting any closer to one another in terms of uh, some sort of uh, agreement. Is there any set of circumstances under which you can see Ukraine and Russia reaching a peace settlement? Or is this going to just be a flat out war until one side wins and surrenders? And the other surrenders. I think most likely this will be a flat-out war, and uh, it will not stop unless one side receives a decisive military victory. Put Putin, no, th th this is not because we are not ready to negotiate. This is my analysis is based on Putin's behavior. He was refusing direct contact with President Zelensky even before the whole thing began. And he continues to refuse it now. I think that with as Putin's age progresses, some changes in his brain and mentality are obvious. He's not the Putin that was before. He was somewhat, although he was a killer, he was rational before, but currently he's definitely not rational. 
he currently reminds me of Gaddafi in his later years. He's definitely paranoid. You can see that he sits uh, dozens of feet from his closest ADs, even during press conferences. Uh, he goes into weird, uh, long, rampant lectures about his interpretations of history. Clearly, he has changed significantly in his making rational decisions. Last question. We've all seen the uh, heartbreaking images of the flow of refugees leaving Ukraine to escape this war. I think the number is now up to 2 million, which is just staggering. Give us a sense. First of all, you must know many of those who are leaving. I don't know about your own family. Are they still there? And should we expect many more Ukrainians to be fleeing this horrible war in the days and weeks to come? Well, my family is with me. My wife is just a few feet from me. So is is my two-year-old son. We are not leaving Ukraine. We do not intend to leave Ukraine. This is the biggest refugee crisis since the World War II, because this is the first time a country is attacking a full-blown invasion since the World War II. This is not just a refugee crisis. This is an exodus, basically. So if you see it in Syria, which is quite far away and has uh, twice less population than Ukraine, you can see what refugee crisis it caused in Europe several years ago. Now multiply that times several, six, I don't know, 10 times. Uh, this is truly a humanitarian catastrophe, and we are very grateful for many countries that have opened their doors, because Europe has still people who lived through the Second World War are still with us. We still have the veterans, those people are, of course, of their old age now, but uh, their daughters, their sons, they are still alive, and they remember those uh, days, and it caused a shock among Ukrainians and Europeans, that this again can be possible. So because of these memories, uh, our people are receiving very good care in Europe. Well, Mr. Zablotsky, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your perspective on what's going on inside your country. And uh, as this crisis continues, uh, we will definitely want to stay in touch. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. We are now joined by Andrei Sashnikov, a Russian investigative journalist now in Prague with Current Time TV, an arm of Radio Free Europe. Andrei, welcome to Skullduggery. Honored to be with you. And it's an honor to talk to you as well. You and I talked some years ago when I was working on Russian Roulette, a book about Putin's interference in the U.S. presidential election, which included a lot about the role of the Internet Research Agency, which you exposed when you were still working in Russia for an independent newspaper. I want to start by pointing out, as that story shows, despite the fact that Russia under Putin has been an authoritarian state for some time, there has at least until now been an independent Russian press that did poke the government, that did expose wrongdoing, and tried to shine a light on what Putin is up to. But now with this new law that Putin has signed, it seems like that era is over. Is that correct? In fact, uh, Russian investigative uh, journalism was flourishing during the past few years. We had a large-scale, Watergate-scale 
investigations uh, published every month about uh, Putin's family, corruption in Kremlin, uh, Russian military operations in other countries and stuff like this. And these days you can't even call the war a war because of the law that Putin signed. It's illegal. You can spend up to 15 years in prison if you say that the war, in fact, is a war. It's a cliche to call it Orwellian situation, but it is an Orwellian situation in Russia. You called Russia authoritarian country. I'm not sure about this anymore. We will see. Will it become totalitarian or not? But Russian law, Russian legislation these days is completely totalitarian. How, how do you explain, Andre, such an abrupt change. And usually you think of these things happening more gradually. And as you just said, investigative journalism was not just tolerated, but it was flourishing. And all of a sudden, this law is passed, which essentially criminalizes all independent journalism, essentially. How did that happen just overnight? First of all, uh, Russian investigative uh, journalism was not tolerated by the state. It was active despite the state, despite the attempts of states uh, to uh, close uh, some uh, media outlets, to send some journalists uh, to prison. Despite all of that, uh, brave Russian journalists were publishing uh, stories. How it uh, became so fast, how Putin had a chance to close uh, everything down, every independent uh, news outlet uh, that covers the war in one day, Well, he had this infrastructure, he had vast majority of state Duma, Russian parliament uh, members that uh, support every his decision. Tell me if this is true, but I heard that there wasn't a single vote against this media law. There was no single vote against this law. Even in two chapters of Russian parliament, all voted in favor of this. But after the vote, some uh, deputy uh, members said that, in fact, they are not so enthusiastic about this. Uh, And these are also brave people, despite the fact that they are part of the system and they voted for the war. They still trying to criticize it a little bit, which shows you how, I don't know, Stalinist it looks, because you have to... Uh, vote in favor anyway, even if you are against it. So uh, I don't want to call these people hostages because uh, they are part of the system, but still looks like they are. So even before the crackdown on independent journalism in Russia, at least, you know, kind of looking at it from the outside, it seemed as if the vast majority of the Russian public was supportive of the war and of Putin and was, you know, essentially won over by the establishment media in Russia. I'm just sort of curious, how big an audience did independent journalism have in Russia? And what will the impact be on the kind of the the dissenting population in Russia with its with the, this crackdown? Most of Russian people take their news from so-called federal TV channels These are big organizations that cover the whole country with their reports uh, on TV. And uh, 
mostly young people take their information from uh, independent media and from Telegram messengers, from Telegram channels. So I don't think the change uh, will be that fast uh, in public opinion and that strong uh, that we can imagine. People still can connect to Telegram. People still can use VPN. And most of people of my generation and younger know how to use all of this. So if you look at the sociological research, you're, you're absolutely right. Most of uh, Russian people agree with the, uh, the intervention, even uh, when they didn't know it will happen. They still agree because Putin decided to invade. But uh, when you see people who get their news, not from the federal TV channels, but from independent news outlets, the change is dramatic. There are not so many people who agree with this if they take independent information from somewhere. So you referred to the the new law that talks about ref- banning any reference to what's going on in Ukraine as a war. But I've seen reports that this new crackdown goes beyond that, that there's bans on publishing anything that is deemed to be false information. And certain news organizations have been labeled you know, inappropriate and therefore not eligible to participate in news conferences. Can you just walk us through the various elements of this new law or laws and mm-hmm. and what the impact has been on the Russian journalists that you know who are still trying to practice their craft? So the most notorious law is a foreign agent's law. Now a private person can be called uh, the foreign agent by the state, uh, which means that uh, you should put a special indicator in all of your social media posts, even if it's a cat meme in Instagram, you're supposed to tell that uh, this message was uh, prepared, developed uh, by uh, the foreign agent, and uh, you have to put this sign using a caps lock so everyone could see. If you will not do such a thing, you will be fined. Government can take all your property from you. So dozens of dozens of my colleagues already called foreign agents by the state, and you can be called foreign agents, agent even if you have nothing to do with journalism or uh, politics. Uh, for example, if one of you will pay for my coffee sometime, I can be called uh, foreign agents because I took money from someone, from foreigners, which means that government can uh, claim that I'm an agent sounds really bad in Russian. Agent means in Russian is the term itself very close to the spy. So basically you have to put a sign. I'm a spy in every of your social media posts and lots of my colleagues already do it, which is crazy. Also, your media outlet can be called inappropriate organization, uh, which means that everyone will not cooperate with you in fear of being prosecuted by the state. If you had sources, if you want to go to a press briefing, if you want to pay money or get uh, donations from somebody, if you were called inappropriate organization or member of an inappropriate organization, 
uh, you will have lots of problems. Uh, it's like people who were called terrorists in Great Britain or Canada. I'm not sure uh, USA had such, uh, has such legislation, but there is a list of people called terrorists in this country. And the same thing in Russia, but they are not terrorists. They inappropriate or they are foreign agents. So many random people were called uh, foreign agents, in fact, just to show uh, the public that everyone must be accurate. You're not supposed to be a brave journalist to become one. So people trying to be as quiet as possible. And uh, when we look again at uh, this research about Russian public opinion, we need to understand that people fear to answer questions and researchers fear to ask questions. That's why we got those numbers. We don't know the truth about the actual support of the intervention. So you were critical to breaking the story about the Internet Research Agency, which was a, a key tool that was being used by Putin and the, the Russian intelligence services to spread a disinformation campaign throughout the West, and in particular in the United States during the 2016 election. I'm curious, as a, a kind of a Internet Research Agency expert, what you're seeing about the current efforts relating to the Ukraine war and the effort to kind of spread, you know, kind of propaganda and disinformation to the West. What's been going on over the last two weeks? I don't think that Internet Research Agency is a huge actor in this uh, story. I think every dependent Russian media had become some kind of Internet Research Agency. Look at RT, look at uh, Sputnik. Uh, every media funded by the government push the same narrative. There is no war in Ukraine. Russia is trying to denazify Ukraine. President Zelensky is a Nazi. There is no harm to civilians in Ukraine. The West is trying to organize a war against Russia, and we need to go and save uh, ourselves by invading Ukraine, stuff like this. So you don't need the Internet Research Agency anymore to push this narrative so I don't think I see a lot of effort from this organization today because there is so much else going on. But just to follow up on Victoria's question, I think a lot of us were expecting that as the first salvo in this war that the Russians would launch cyber attacks on Ukraine, would shut down you know, some of their critical infrastructure, and that there would be a large information warfare part of that mm -hmm. as well. We didn't see that. They did. Uh, they actually tried to, at tried to attack uh, Ukrainian bank system several days before the invention. But I think uh, Ukraine was prepared for this. And uh, I don't think, again, hackers are a huge actor in this story because, because the main actor in this story is Russian army that's trying to reach Kiev right now. So you don't need anything else if you have tanks. Tanks are more effective. You use trolls, you use hackers if you cannot use tanks. If you use tanks, you can um, just rely on them. You see the tanks are more effective, I guess. So it's, it's not an informational war anymore. It's an actual war with informational component. A big part of the Russian 
disinformation campaign is to refer to the Ukrainian government as a hostage to Nazis, neo-Nazis. That is a, you know, a principal theme of Putin's rhetoric and that he's used to justify this invasion. Where is that coming from? What slender grain of truth, if there is one, does he base this on? Um, I know that there's something called the Azov Brigade in, in, in eastern Ukraine that apparently does include, you know, uh, extreme right wingers. But when he talks about the whole country as needing denazification, mm-hmm. what is he talking about? Well, first of all, I'm not an expert on Ukraine. And if you want to talk about uh, Ukrainian neo-Nazis, you probably should ask someone from Ukraine. But I know, for example, that Azov Battalion uh, is banned from Facebook, according to the leak uh, documents from Facebook, that we could uh, have access to in 2021 because uh, of its radical views. Also, denazification, right? So Putin is a great admirer of the Second World War history. So he looks at everything through the prism of the Second World War. He thinks that this is the most important event ever ever happened. And he's probably right. But we live in the 21st century these days. So lots of stuff going on. Also, not only the circumstances uh, of the Second World War, but something else is going on, right? For example, President Zelensky is not a fascist. He's not a Nazi. He was elected uh, during the free elections uh, against his competitor. And you will never see this information on Russian state uh, TV channels. Everyone there talks about Maidan, like it was a putsch against democratically elected President Yanukovych, which is complete baloney. It was a free expression of people on the streets. And I was visiting Kiev uh, and Maidan, Maidan in 2013, and I've never seen any Nazis there, actually. I've seen some Nazis in Azov Battalion, and we know some U.S. citizens with neo-Nazi views views tried to serve in Azov Battalion, but I don't think the scale uh, of these views is huge in uh, uh, Ukraine these days. And uh, last but not least, we need to understand that neo-Nazis were also fighting against Ukraine in Donbass region in 2014 and 2015. On the Russian side. On the Russian side, exactly, including foreigners. There was a, a special brigade called uh, Vikernes Brigade, for instance. And Vark Vikernes is the Norwegian uh, neo-Nazi, which many of our listeners are probably familiar of. He was a musician. He killed some people and burned some churches. But also he wrote some neo-Nazi books explaining his views. And there was a special brigade using his name, uh, fighting against Ukraine. Also, many Russian criminal neo-Nazis who were uh, wanted by the states, they joined the Donetsk People's Repu- so-called Donetsk People's Republic's army 
to uh, save themselves from capturing by the Russian state. So it was kind of a deal between the state and these kind of people. So if you want to measure like Nazi tattoos on Ukrainian side and uh, Russia's proxies, you will find the same amount of Nazi tattoos on both sides, I guess. I want to uh, take you back to your groundbreaking reporting about the Internet Research Agency, which happened in the aftermath of the assassination of Boris Nepsov on that bridge in the shadow of the Kremlin in February 2015. Can you walk us through how you came to learn about the Internet Research Agency, uh, the whistleblower, uh, Ludmila Savchuk, who came to you, what she told you, and how that led to your reporting about about this? First of all, I worked for the Internet Research Agency for one day as an undercover journalist. I probably had to spend more time there, but at this point, time it was a small story quite i we didn't know it's such a big operation and that uh, this operation will target uh, western countries for instance we thought it's some kind of a small pr agency that was uh, established to work on the local elections during the local elections some, something like this we didn't you knew it will spread the disinformation about vaccines targeting uh, U.S. citizens, which is crazy, and uh, that it, it will shoot videos of uh, American, quote-unquote, American soldiers that shooting a Quran book to flame uh, the conflict in U.S. and stuff like this. They produced many evil fakes and when I'm trying to remember all these fakes, I still surprise how evil this operation was. So uh, I, I was a journalist in St. Petersburg, and I saw the vacancy uh, on the internet uh, that uh, we need some people to uh, as an internet operators. Uh, so internet operator is a person who just posting stuff on internet and it was quite suspicious because there were not a lot of information about uh, this internet operator vacancy and someone uh, visited uh, the internet research agency and told me that uh, they ask strange questions like uh, what's your attitude towards Vladimir Putin what's your attitude towards democracy what's your attitude towards the west and stuff like this so i decided that i need to see it myself i visited the organization uh, i've talked to their boss at this time not a sponsor but the boss i had a chance to uh, ask him some questions and then uh, he gave me a task uh, to uh, write several blog posts about the new educational law in Russia. I don't remember what was the story about this law, but it was in the news at uh, the day I worked there as undercover. So I published the first story, and then uh, one of my Sources told me that uh, he has a friend who worked there for one month already, and she uh, is going to tell more about it. And that's how I met uh, Ludmila. 
she collected all the information possible, including files, um, uh, emails, photos, all you need from whistleblowers she collected and sent it to me. That's how we published the second story. I must say that uh, Ludmila is one of the bravest persons I've ever met because uh, she worked for this organization, which is quite dangerous. It's not a secret service or some government agency. Actually, the sponsor of the troll farm, Evgeny Prigozhin, who is now sanctioned by U.S., is a former criminal. He spent some time in prison in 1980s, uh, and he tried to kill a woman once, at least. And there is uh, there are rumors that he killed the person using his own hands not so long time ago. So he could harm her, but still she was brave enough to provide the public uh, with this important information. And in addition, we should point out that in addition to sponsoring the Internet Research Agency, Prigozhin, the oligarch close to Putin, also uh, runs an operation of mercenaries uh, called the Wagner Group that has been active in Syria and we believe now in Ukraine as well. In Ukraine as well, yes. We know that they have a base uh, in Rostov nowadays and some... uh, Telegram channels close to the Wagner group uh, messaged that uh, some of uh, Wagner mercenaries are in Ukraine right now. But we don't know the scale of the operation and, and what's the task of Wagner in Ukraine. But yes, and we must say that uh, being mercenary is illegal in Russia. But since Evgeny Prigozhin is the Putin's chief, he actually serves food to Putin and all the world leaders. He can do whatever he wants. And uh, when, uh, whenever a leader of the country visiting Russia, he is served by Evgeny Prigozhin. We must understand this, that Prigozhin is still the main provider of food to Kremlin. So visiting Kremlin, you will be served by Prigozhin. He's known uh, as Put- Putin's chef, right? Exactly. He's Putin's chef. The guy wears many hats, you know, mercenaries, <laughs> social media posts, you know, food. By the way, Andre, and this is something I, I learned reading Russian Roulette. I can't remember who wrote that book. Was yeah. It? Yeah. But anyway, uh, this some, guy, David Korn. Was, yeah, uh, David yeah, Korn. That's right. Yeah. The Internet Research uh, Agency, I mean, one of the things that they were doing after Boris Nemtsov was murdered which, Mike, you alluded to Nemtsov at the beginning of this conversation, the opposition leader, the Internet Research Agency was putting out the word that he was murdered by people tied to Ukrainian oligarchs and people Mm -hmm. tied to uh, Petro Poroshenko, the the, then the president of Ukraine, president of Ukraine, who who uh, was uh, very pro West, pro Europe. Right. Yes. And uh, not only Nemtsov's story is relevant uh, to what you just said. Every tragedy in in Russia immediately is connected to Ukraine uh, by the state media. Look at the massive explosion in Voronezh in 2021, for instance. Uh, Russian investigative committee said that they're investigating Ukrainian terrorists that could be behind it. We never know the names of these terrorists or any of these criminals, uh, but uh, they say that Ukraine these days is developing biological warfare. 
to use it against Russia. The official spokesman to the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense told uh, this information. They say that uh, Ukraine and Georgia, they have eight or ten laboratories developing uh, deadly weapons, uh, something genetic against Russian. They use Ukraine all the time to blame, uh, to connect uh, this country to any bad thing that's happening in Russia. So I want to come back to today and the state of uh, independent journalism in Russia. It's it's taken a series of body blows over the last few years, and this latest seems pretty devastating. What is the resilience of the kind of the independent journalism core and the desire of the kind of people to consume independent journalism? What's the future hold for the independent journalism movement in Russia? Well, I must say most of my colleagues, they uh, emigrated from Russia. They now live uh, outside of Russia and they will continue to cover stories from outside of the country, which is uh, rather difficult, but uh, we have no other option. That's all. The biggest problem is uh, sources, because we had sources in many organizations. Some of my colleagues had sources in police other in uh, Kremlin, stuff like this. And when they're trying to approach the, their sources these days, their sources say, we can still be friends, but we won't give you any information. And my colleagues say that I don't want to be your friend. I need an information from you because I need to serve the interest of the public. So we will use more open source intelligence tools. We still can use... Um, I don't know, business registry, real estate uh, registry. We can use some help uh, from uh, our colleagues uh, in Europe trying to find assets and uh, real estate of Russian oligarchs, for instance. So I think uh, most of my colleagues will continue, but it's quite difficult to them to operate outside of the country. Well, Andre, I want to uh, thank you for all your reporting, uh, which has been so consequential, and uh, and also to thank you for uh, joining us on this podcast to shed light on um, what's going down in Russia as well as in Ukraine. Thanks a lot. Thank you for the interest. 